if you've grown up with siblings, um, one of the things that you'll realise is how offensive and hurtful they can be, right? Um, one of the things that I was, I, was, I was considering this this week, um, someone that doesn't know you, you know, they, they, it's hard for them to deeply offend you because they don't know you enough. But someone that knows you can deeply offend you um, even with the, the, the smallest words. Um, I have five kids and all of them can be deeply hurtful. They just, I don't know what it is. It's not like I ever taught them to be hurtful, but they just know how to push your buttons. But it's funny because if another kid did the same thing, I wouldn't be as deeply offended. It's the fact that my kids know me. Um, another example would be, um, I was trying to think of an example. If you've ever met Ellen Jang, um, she's the sweetest girl in our church, right? The sweetest, except to one person. <laughs> Just one person. Um, and that's her lovely brother. Um it doesn't matter what anyone else says outside to her. You know, it, it, it won't sort of cut as deep. But, but as soon as Albert says even the slightest thing, it can be so offensive to her. And the reason is because he knows her and she knows him. Um, the more you get to know someone, the more you are able to be offended by them and also the ability to offend them grows as well. We're in this series in the book of Isaiah and from chapters 1 to 5, we see that Isaiah, a prophet sent by God, is telling the Israelites how offensive they are, how offensive they have been toward God. Uh, the picture that's painted um, of the Israelites is that even though God loved them and even though God saved them out of Egypt, they have now turned away and they have forsaken God and they've turned to worshipping idols and idols of neighbouring nations. And this has deeply offended God. And the question that, that we're going to go through today in Isaiah chapter 6 is the question of well, why. Why have the actions of the Israelites been so offensive to God? And to understand this, we need to understand who God is. And so let's go to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah shares his vision that he sees of God. And, and, and he shares this to um, share with the Israelites who God is. And as I said, the reason why God is so offended is because he is so known by the Israelite people, or should be known. But we see six things about God that we learn about God in this vision, just even in those four um, verses. The first thing is, is God is alive. Unlike King Uzziah, who died, and like every other earthly king, the thing that makes God different is that he is alive. Psalm 90 verse 2 reads, For everlasting to everlasting thou art God. God was the living God at the beginning of creation, and through seasons and centuries and generations, God is still alive. God is the living God. Secondly, we learn that God has authority. God is not only alive, but is seen as high and exalted, seated on a throne. There was a song in the 90s, What If God Was One of Us? Right? And it was this uh, abstract song and this idea of, well, if God was like one of us, what would he have been like? And, and blah, 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 blah. But, but the point is this, God is not like one of us. And sometimes we get this wrong too because sometimes we, we, we want to use words like God is my friend, you know, and God is my, my, my homeboy. Uh, but, but God is not like us. He reigns and rules with authority. That's what makes us different. He sits on the throne and, and we do not. And this is not authority that we have given to God. This is not authority that we have bestowed onto God, but this is authority that he has regardless of whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we accept it or not. God has authority. The third thing we learn from this passage is God's presence is felt. The train of his robe filled the temple. God's robe. Now, it's hard for us to understand sometimes when they use metaphors of clothing because when we think of a robe, we think of like a bathrobe, which is a little bit, I don't know if that's going to work within this picture, but the idea of the train of the robe, the train is like the wedding dress, the thing that hangs out behind the wedding dress. And so when, when Isaiah says the train of his robe, the thing that hangs out behind it, filled the temple, it's the idea that his presence was felt. It's felt everywhere. If the queen, who is meant to be our highest monarch, were to come into your house or were to come into our church, it does not matter where you're sitting. Her presence would be felt. This is our God. That wherever we are, his presence is felt. Fourthly, we learn that God is revered. Uh, we meet these creatures called the seraphim uh, with six wings. And in verse 4, when one of them speaks, the doorposts and thresholds shake. That's what it says. Uh, these guys, they're not like sometimes we, we picture creatures that described as like little Furbies, right? Little, you know, little Hatchimals, 
If you have kids, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, plus, if you want 12-pack of Hatchimals, I've got them special price just, you know, just for you guys, just letting you know. Anyway, but these seraphims, these seraphims are not little you know, gizmos, right? These seraphims are, are creatures that are serious. They are serious-looking creatures, and yet... What we find about these seraphims is even though they are serious creatures, they cannot even look at God. We see that in the Bible that when, whenever an angel appears to man, man is terrified and, thrident, and frightened by the sheer sight of an angel. And yet angels hide. Angels hide themselves in the reverence of God. So we've got, to, we've got to think, God's pretty powerful. He must be one pretty powerful being. The fifth thing that we learn from this passage is uh, that God is holy. These seraphim, they call out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. This word holy, it means to be set apart, right? Uh, Silly illustration, Skittles, there's five colors in Skittles, okay? I don't know about you, but there is one color that is set apart from the other four colors, purple, right? All the other four, you just mash them together and you eat them, but the purple ones, they're special. So you set them apart. They're a class of their own, right? That's what our God is. Another way to say that something is holy is to have to be in a class of their own, meaning that there is no comparison. There is no comparison. And that's what the seraphim is saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. There is no one that comes even close to who God is. We can look anywhere on earth and there is no one that comes close to the character of God, the presence of God. He is the Holy One. He is one of a kind. No one comes close. God is holy. And finally, we learn that God is glorious. What happens when the holiness of God, the idea that God is absolutely incomparable, that He's a class of His own, what happens when that God goes public? It's glorious. What we see is the glory of God. The glory of God is the manifestation of His holiness. And Scripture tells us the whole earth is filled with His glory from top to bottom. You can see God's holiness stand out in creation. When God shows Himself to be holy, what we see is His glory. It's amazing. So this is who God is. This is the picture that Isaiah is sharing with us in this vision of who God is. This is the God that the Israelites have offended. They have offended the holy God. And in verse 5, we see Isaiah's confession in that moment. He says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In the presence of the Holy God, Isaiah confesses that if that is who God is, this is who I am. 
I am a man of unclean lips. I am, uh, I am part of a people that are unclean. And he would have said this in fear and trembling as he saw God. Because in the Old Testament, the, the pureness of God, the holiness of God, the, the glory of God, if any man, any human was to see God face to face, they would die. Because God was too powerful. And so Isaiah, in his confession, also is in fear and trembling because he has seen God. And most likely he's expecting to die. And yet we see something amazing happen in the next two verses, verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the, uh, taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The live coal touches Isaiah's mouth and instead of burning him, it burns away the uncleanness of his lips and heart. And if we, a few weeks ago, we talked about fire. We talked about the, the properties of fire, and this is that refining fire. Isaiah expected the fire to destroy him, and yet God takes away Isaiah's sin through the coal that came from the altar. See, the altar in the temple was the place where sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. If I was an Israelite person, and I sinned, I would go to the temple and I would give a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice on my behalf. And the blood that would shed, uh, the blood that was shed of that animal would represent me, represent my blood, represent my sin and the punishment that I deserved. But ultimately, it was given to this animal or this bird and through that sacrifice, my sin became atoned. Now, the word atoned means to make amends for wrongdoing. To be atoned was to make amends for wrongdoing. So when, when as an Israelite, you went to the temple and you gave your sacrifice and the blood was shed, your sins were made atoned. You were made right with God. See, this is who man is. We're sinful, we're unclean, and yet God chooses to atone our sin through sacrifice, not just in the Old Testament, but the ultimate sacrifice of his one and only son, Jesus. It's pretty amazing. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. This is Isaiah speaking. In that moment of seeing God, seeing the glory of God, the holiness of God, and then recognizing himself as a sinner, experiencing God's salvation through that refining fire. In that moment, God says, hey, I need someone to go. And Isaiah puts up his hand and makes himself available to God and says, here I am, send me. 
One of the amazing things about Isaiah in that very statement is that there is no condition. There are no questions asked by Isaiah. God, where do you want us to go? Where are you going to send me? I'll think about it after I get married. Or I'll think about it after my career has settled down. For Isaiah, the whole experience of seeing God, recognizing who he was, being saved by God, was enough for him to go above and beyond and do whatever God wanted him to do and go wherever God wanted him to go. And as noble as that sounds, if you read the rest of chapter 6, We see that God actually is going to send Isaiah to Israel to proclaim judgment and punishment upon them. Definitely not a popular job. But Isaiah was ready to obey. He was ready to do anything for God. The glorious and holy God that would save him of his sin. There are three questions that we see in this passage. Who is God? Who is man? What is man's response? Now, a lot of times, um, you know, I share stories about, um, you know, different situations or different people or examples. But as I actually was preparing this sermon, a lot of the stories that I kept thinking about came back to some of the experiences that I had in my own life. And so I thought I'd share a little bit about my story. I know a lot of people who have been at the church for a while, you probably know a lot of these stories, but I also know that there's a lot of people that probably haven't heard these stories before as well. And there were just three key moments, and I think probably three of the most key moments in my life. First question is this, who is man? So I grew up in a Christian family, and at church I would be taught all about God who he is, what he did, what he's done for us. And as I was growing up, it was all just great information. It was just all great facts to learn. But it wasn't real to me. And only when I was 13, uh, when I went to my first high school church camp, I clearly remember on the last night in a time of prayer and response, the preacher was saying, Hey, you're a sinner. You need to be saved. Jesus is the answer. And in a supernatural moment, in a moment that I can't explain with my own words, except to say that that was God moving inside of me, in that split second, everything that I had learned about God suddenly became real. And God became real. At 13 years old, I recognized that I had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That I had lived my, it wasn't a long life then, 13 years, but I had lived that life as if I was God. I was calling the shots. But I realized that I needed forgiveness for my sins. And that night, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I was unclean and needed Jesus to atone my sin. I recognized who I was. So that's who is man. Second question, who is God? At the age of 15, 
two and a half years later, I went on my first mission trip to Thailand. Uh, this was the first time I had traveled um, on an airplane without my family, and I was one of the youngest people of the team. Um, there was only three high school kids of a team of 13 or 15, I can't remember. And um, it was a wonderful experience. To me, it, it was fun, you know. 15-year-old without family gets to go overseas. How good is that, right? And we're in Thailand, and everyone in Thailand's so happy. They're so smiley, right? And uh, we, we were visiting this tribe. And you've got to remember, right, this is 1998, right? This is a long time ago now. Um, we were visiting this tribe called the Red Lahu tribe. And they were situated in the mountains of Thailand. And we were spending time with them. Uh, we were uh, sharing about God through translators. I remember we, we had to have two translators in between us and the people because they had different dialect. But, you know, we were doing everything that we could just to love on them and, and do life with them. And, and we were there for maybe three to four days. But there was a moment, once again, a moment, where I remember standing literally on top of a mountain, looking down on all these other mountains and valleys and forests and all these other villages from on top of this mountain and just thinking, wow, God, you made all of this. That's crazy. You're amazing. And at the age of 15, I got to recognize God for who he was, holy and glorious. Who is God? Thirdly, my response. Two years later, at the age of 17, when I was in my final year of high school, um, I went to a large church, and during that year, in year 12, sadly, I watched a lot of my friends at church leave the church for various reasons, but mainly using the reason because they needed to study. Now, I loved my friends, and I loved God, so watching my friends leave the church really upset me. At the beginning of the year, our grade would have had about 30 students. And by the end of the year, after, uh, until exams were finished, we ended up with four. And I remember one night coming home from church where there was only four of us in our grade, thinking about the 26 that had left. And I remember just being upset, really upset. Not just upset at the church, but really upset with God. And I remember sitting um, in my backyard and, 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 and I would pray. And I was praying this one Sunday night. But it wasn't one of those nice, subtle, calm, uh, reverent prayers. It was, it was actually quite an angry prayer as a 17-year-old. And I remember, and I, I do remember this, I remember pointing to the sky. I said, God, don't you love my friends? God, don't you care about the 26 of my friends at church? Why didn't you bring them back? Why did you let them leave? And I was so upset. I was just really upset. I remember I was in tears. I was just upset. 
And, you know, I, just forenote, it's not probably the smartest thing to do to stick your finger up at God and be angry at him because if lightning strikes, that's where it's going to hit. Just a note. But I remember at that moment, in that moment of being so upset and so frustrated, God spoke to me. Not audibly, but in my heart. And he said, Steve, why don't you bring them back? Why don't you go and bring them back for me? And at the age of 17, I remember replying to God, responding to God in that moment, saying, God, if that's what you want me to do, if that's what you want me to do in my life, fine. That's what I'll do. And that's how I ended up going into ministry. And that's why I became a pastor. And that's why we started the church. It was a simple response to God. A very simple, simple desire to bring my friends back. And praise be to God, a lot of them have come back to the church. There are some that haven't yet. And I'm still praying for them. Who is God? He's the creator of the universe. There is no one like him. He is holy and his holiness expressed is the, in the world is his glory. Who is man? Man is unclean. We are an unclean people with unclean lips and unclean hearts that need to be saved. And God does this through the act of sacrifice, but not a temporary sacrifice of animal or bird, but the ultimate sacrifice of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross. And it was his blood that was shed so that our sin, our wrongdoing, could be made right again. He atoned for our sin. So what's our response? Knowing who God is, like really knowing who he is, knowing who we are, accepting our fallen nature and sinfulness, knowing what God has done for us, what is your response. See, Isaiah, he had it right. Here I am. Send me. There were no conditions, no timeline. He just made himself available to God. He didn't know what the rest of his life was going to look like, but he knew who God was. He knew who he was. He knew he experienced God's hand uh, personally in that moment. And he just responded to God in the way that we should. See, what's interesting is this. Maybe for some of us, we've been going to church for a while. Maybe for some of us, We've been reading Bible and Scripture for a while. But maybe our response 
is actually quite far from the response of Isaiah. And I want to challenge you tonight. Why? Why is that? Is it because you don't really know who God is? Like you may have heard about God. You may be coming to church and and people are telling you about this God. But really for you personally, maybe you've never experienced God or maybe you've never seen God in that personal, relational way. Maybe that's the reason why it's hard for you to respond in the way that Isaiah responded. Because you don't know the holiness of God. You haven't experienced the glorious nature of God. Maybe that's it. Or maybe it's because you can't accept who you are, that you're a sinner and that you need to be saved. Maybe that's the point where you get stuck. And maybe you think to yourself, you know what? I know I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. You know, I can live my life. I can do my best. I can, you know, I can be moral. I can try to make good decisions. And therefore, I don't need God or I don't need to respond to God. Maybe that's the reason why. But here's the thing. If you know God, if you've experienced God and his goodness, his holiness and his glory, you can't go back to living your life the way that you've been living. It it, it doesn't make sense. You think about all the major, uh, major events in your life. Right, one of our brothers this week, Panny, is getting married. Congratulations. It's a big event. Imagine he got married, goes through the ceremony, and then just goes back to living his life like a single man, not getting a haircut. Hopefully he's got a haircut by now. People would be, pe- people would be dumbfounded. How can you live? <laughs> how can you get married and then just live as if you weren't married? And yet, how is it that we're okay when we see ourselves or we see other Christians, people that know God or claim to know God, live as if just the same as yesterday? It doesn't make sense. God, the creator of heaven and earth, sent his son Jesus to save you from your sin. If he didn't do that, you'd be going to hell. And you you, you put your faith in Jesus and say, I'm going to follow you. How does that lead to no change, no transformation in your life? It doesn't make sense. And that's the bottom line. It can't. It can't. You can't know God personally. 
You can't understand that you are a sinner that needs to be saved. You can't experience God and be the same. Just like Isaiah, who experienced God in this chapter, changed the, the complete path of his life. And the response was, here I am. Send me. Doesn't matter what I'm going through in my life. Doesn't matter where you're going to send me. Because you are God. You're God. The creator of the universe. That's who you are. So I ask you, do you know God? How well do you know God? Enough to be offended? Enough to offend him? What about yourself? How well do you know yourself? Do you know how sinful you are? How far from creation you are? But friends, if you know God, if you've experienced God, and you know who you are, you know where you sit, and you've got that humility inside of your heart, then respond. Respond by saying, Lord, here I am. Send me. And for some of you, that might mean going overseas. For some of you, that might mean doing ministry in your family. For some of you, that might mean serving in the church. For some of you, it might mean a career change. For some of you, it might mean giving more than what you're giving now. The point isn't where is God going to send you. The point is, are you ready to be sent? Are you in a position? Are you in a posture that is ready to be used by God? Because that's what this passage is teaching us, that if you've experienced God, then you need to be ready to be used by him. Friends, I pray. I pray that you would be used by God. And I pray that that wouldn't come out of an obligation or a duty of some kind of religious order. I need to do this for God. I need to do it. No, because you've experienced the goodness, the greatness of God. And actually, you have no choice but to make yourself available because it's God. Because it's God Almighty asking. It's God Almighty sending. And if there are things in your life where, you know, maybe you, you, you've been in, you know, had an experience of, you know, maybe had an inkling of you felt like God wanted you to do something or God wanted you to be somewhere and you, you said no, you've got to think about why. What was it that you were holding on to? What was the boundary? What was the barrier that stopped you? from living completely for God. You need to consider those things. But my prayer is for you and for our, uh, us as a church as well, 
as we experience God, as we understand who he is and who we are, that even as a church, we would be saying to God, God, send us. We're here. And pray that over our church tonight. Let's pray.